The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We'll be in Matthew 18 if you want to turn there, and there's an outline provided for you the back of the bulletin as we look at Matthew's account of the glorious resurrection. If you need a Bible and you want to borrow a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and our ushers will give you a Bible to follow through. In the sermon, there's a hand right there. We're going to look at all 20 verses in Matthew's account. We did have a Good Friday service that was well attended. Days ago, as we looked at what the Gospels had to say about the day when Jesus Christ was crucified on that Friday, that historic Friday where he willingly died for sinners. But that's not the end of the story. That was bad news. Good news for sinners, but bad news. But that story isn't over. Today is the culmination to that story. And it ends with glorious, wonderful, good news. And that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. That's what the Christian religion is all about. Christian religion isn't about rules and regulations and things you can and cannot do. The Christian religion is about good news. And it's about a person, and it's about Jesus Christ. And that's what we're looking at today. The greatest of all good news that the Bible and the Christian message has to offer is in the resurrection story of Matthew 28. Before we get to Matthew 28, I was just thinking, and I was reminded in 2001 when the Twin Towers were destroyed, and it was becoming evident that it was done by 11, 18, 19 fanatics or terrorists, but it just so happened that they had to, they affiliated with a religion called Islam. And then there was a national and worldwide debate at that time about, well, what is Islam? And people got intrigued and started studying it. What do Muslims really believe? And that went on for actually quite a few years. But I, I remember early on in the conversation when somebody asked me, it was an unbeliever at the time, who actually believed that all religions are the same. And they asked me sincerely, so I think all religions are the same, but what makes Christian? Why do you think Christianity is different and distinct? And specifically, they asked me, "What's the difference between Jesus and Muhammad?" And their answer was nothing. They were just men; they were equal. So why make such a big deal about your Christianity and this Jesus thing? And my answer was immediate, because it was so simple. There's a huge difference between Jesus and. Muhammad. Actually, there's an eternal, supernatural difference. Jesus rose from the dead, and he is alive. He rose himself from the dead, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he reigns on high. That's the difference. Muhammad is still dead and in the grave. I'm not trying to denigrate his religion. That's just a fact. Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. That is the difference. And also, coupled with that, the difference is that Jesus is the God-man. He is God in a body. Muhammad and everybody else were just finite, fallen human beings. So that is the distinctive of Christianity. That's what sets Christianity apart as true against every other worldview and ideology and and religion on planet Earth, that Jesus is the God-man and he rose from the dead. And by the way, this concept or this idea or this doctrine or belief called resurrection is unique to the bible it is unique to christianity it was revealed by god as a mystery from heaven no human being ever would on their own come up with this idea of the doctrine of resurrection the greeks thought that idea was absurd when they were talking to paul so resurrection is a unique biblical truth that came directly from God, not from human wisdom or human ingenuity. And the doctrine of the resurrection is all throughout the Bible. The doctrine of the resurrection is actually the backbone and the foundation of true biblical Christianity. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. So when Jesus rose again from the dead in the Gospels, that was not new truth or some new event or that was unanticipated or people didn't realize, especially the Jews. Even though the disciples struggled with Jesus dying, and even though his enemies, the Pharisees and Sadducees, rejected the fact that he would rise again from the dead as the Messiah, it was a clear biblical truth revealed throughout history in the Old Testament scriptures. Resurrection 
of the Messiah and resurrection of all people when they die, whether they are believers and unbelievers, is a biblical truth woven throughout all of Scripture. And I just want to pay, uh, point you to Genesis chapter 3. And then we're going to go to Matthew 28. God created two people, Adam and Eve. They were real people. You came from Adam and Eve. I came from Adam and Eve, just as God describes it in Genesis. God wanted to bless them. They chose to disobey. They disobeyed and did what God said they shouldn't do, and as a result, they got punished. There are consequences for disobedience and sin. Yet God would be gracious to them and make a way of covering and forgiveness for their sin. Nevertheless, there are consequences for sin. And so God curses Adam and Eve for their sin and disobedience. And this is a true story in Genesis chapter 3. And God also cursed the snake, the animal that was involved. And God cursed Satan, who was inside of that snake, that tempted Adam and Eve to sin. And when God is cursing the snake, and when God is cursing Satan, who is in the snake, is the first time in the Bible we have a hint at the doctrine of the resurrection. And we'll see it for the rest of human history as it is told throughout the pages of Scripture. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord God said to the snake or the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you uh, more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. God cursed the snake and the animal literally. That's why snakes slither around on their gut, probably lost their legs that day. Now here's the key, verse 15, where the reference or the allusion or... The unveiling of this doctrine of resurrection is first given in Scripture. God cursed the snake. Now he's going to curse Satan who is inside of the snake. And God says, verse 15, I will put enmity, I will put hatred. Now he's talking to Satan. We know this from the context and also from the New Testament. God says, I will put hatred between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve. Or you, Satan, and humanity. So especially believing humans all throughout history. There will be a war, and it will be a spiritual war as well as a physical war. I'm going to put hatred between you, Satan, and the woman or Eve, and between your seed or descendants, and between her descendant, or here singular, descendant, singular, referring to an offspring or somebody who would come from the loins eventually from Eve. That is the Messiah. That is Jesus. So God the Father here says to Satan, I'm going to put enmity and hatred between you, Satan, Eve, and the coming Messiah, Jesus. So Genesis 3.15 is a reference to the coming Messiah. And God goes on to say, He, that is the offspring of Eve, in other words, the Messiah, shall crush your head. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to crush your head. Satan, Jesus did that with his perfect life and his substitutionary death and resurrection. But Jesus, the Messiah, will be hurt by Satan in the process. He shall crush you on the head, but you shall bruise him on the heel. You shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, Satan was going to be allowed to hurt, hurt the Messiah. And here God was predicting that, the Messiah, that Satan would actually kill the Messiah. But the illusion there in verse 15 is that Jesus would overcome that attack from Satan and overcome Satan and crush his head victoriously. And then in Romans 16 and also in Revelation chapter 12, that's exactly the New Testament commentary on this passage, that Jesus overcame Satan his death blow rose again from the dead and reigns on high. Thus, the doctrine of introduce, uh, intro, uh, resurrection is introduced for us in the Bible, and it goes all throughout. And so now it culminates in climaxes in this, the resurrection story of the blessed Jesus, our Savior. So let's go ahead and look at it. So you can turn now to Matthew 28. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20. This is a narrative account. Uh, all four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all give details about the resurrection. And they were given and written down at different times. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. He was a horrible, wicked, terrible sinner when he met Jesus. And Jesus gave him the good news. And Matthew was convicted. And Matthew came to believe in Jesus Christ. And he got saved and forgiven of his sins. Was an apostle. Followed Christ all the way up to the point of his death and resurrection. And then now it's 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection when Matthew decides to go ahead and pen and write down the gospel story. So that's when, uh, probably about 60 uh, A.D. is when Matthew was written. And it could be that Mark was written a little bit after this. And then Luke after that. And then it's many years later in the 90s where John finally writes his account. So 
God is giving these written accounts of the gospel story of Resurrection Sunday at different times. But this is Matthew's account. He was an eyewitness of what happened. Or at least he was personal friends who were eyewitnesses of the details here that they told him. And also he's moved by the Holy Spirit to write it down. This is history that is reliable that we can count on every single detail. This is given to us by God to his people and also to sinners that they might be set free regarding this wonderful story. So I've got three points that I just kind of divided the narrative up in on this resurrection story from Matthew. All of it is true. Again, I was reminded of, actually this happens occasionally when I'm talking to somebody who is either an unbeliever or they're a critic of Scripture. And on more than one occasion, I have asked such critics of Scripture or critics and doubters of the Bible or doubters of the resurrection story Simply, so do you believe that Jesus was a real person? I think 100% of the time, I've always received the answer, well, yes. I mean, it's pretty much undeniable. The secular, unbelieving, humanistic, atheistic world believes that Jesus was a historical person. And then I'll ask something like, so do you believe that Jesus died by crucifixion? And the answer is, well, yes, because that's undeniable from history and from Scripture as well. But then I will ask things like, well, do you believe that he rose again from the dead? Or do you believe that he died on the cross and rose again from the dead for the purpose of giving supernatural eternal life to sinners who would repent? They don't answer that one with a yes. As a matter of fact, the most common answer is, well, I'm not sure the resurrection really happened. Now, the problem is when they say that they have a double standard. Because they're saying, yeah, I believe Jesus existed. Yeah, I believe he died on the cross, but I don't believe in the resurrection. What they don't realize, and here's their ignorance, is everything they believe about Jesus that is true, the fact that he lived, the words that he spoke, the miracles that he did, and the fact that he got crucified on a cross, all those truths come from the Bible and only the Bible. The fact that Jesus got crucified on a cross on a Friday is found nowhere else in human literature. And I, I would challenge you, tell me one detailed truth about Jesus that you didn't get from the Bible. Think about it and at some point, you know, if you want to come talk to me. And I, I would just say that you, there's nothing that is true specifically about Jesus that you believe that you didn't get from the Bible. So when an unbeliever says, well, I believe he existed and I believe he died on the cross, but then they say, I don't believe he rose from the dead. They're picking and choosing of what they want to believe in the Bible. That's a double standard. That is inconsistent. You either embrace all of Scripture or you have none of it. It is all God's Word. And so with that, let's go ahead and look at Matthew 28 that came from an eyewitness, a beloved apostle and disciple of Jesus Christ himself who witnessed the resurrection and walked with Christ for probably three years just prior to his death. So uh, three points there. The first uh, is verses 1 through 10, just glorious good news we're going to look at. And then the second point is 11 to 15 where there's an interruption of some bad news seems like somebody always has to mess up the good news with bad news. But that is life. That is reality. And it's in Scripture. And God is honest with us. We can relate to that. But God doesn't leave us hanging there with the bad news. He concludes with glorious good news. And I want you to be going to lunch with glorious good news today. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, Matthew's resurrection account. The first point there is verses 1 through 10. Rejoicing about the resurrection. Rejoicing... Boy, the fact that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead is cause for rejoicing for saved sinners. Amen, isn't it? And that's what we're doing today. We came to rejoice. We came to praise God. We came to be filled up and encouraged. That's what Resurrection Sunday is all about. Easter Sunday, actually Resurrection Sunday, is the most important day in the history of the world and the universe. Whether you realize it or not, it is. It is the climax of all of God's work for humanity and all of creation. It's a day of rejoicing. So rejoicing about the resurrection, true joy and worship. That's what this is about. So let's go ahead and survey the details. Starting at verse 1. Remember they crucified Jesus on Good Friday. Then Joseph of Arimathea, who was a prominent Sadducee and a secret believer of Jesus, just before the sun was going down, one of Jesus' body as it was taken off the cross, so he says he mustered up courage to go before Pilate. To ask Pilate, can I have Jesus' body? And so Pilate granted the body 
uh, to Joseph of Arimathea. Then he had Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, probably another secret believer at that time. And Joseph and Nicodemus, and maybe a couple others, we don't know, they took Jesus' body and they went to Joseph of Arimathea's own private tomb. Joseph of Arimathea may have been a wealthy man, and he had money to pay for his own private tomb that he had hewn out of the side of a rock. It had never been used. It was brand new. It was pristine. How perfect and fitting for the blessed, sinless Savior, Jesus our Lord. So Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, bound up his body and put the spices, basically uh, taking care of his body, and then they buried it in that tomb. That was on Friday. My wife and I had the privilege of going to Israel almost three years ago. Jerusalem is small, small city, and it's all made of limestone. It hasn't changed much in thousands of years, and we actually went to the very site where the tomb still exists to this day, the garden tomb. The reason they know it exists today is because, like I said, Jerusalem is so small. There are no other options. And it's all uh, made out of limestone, and it's not, uh, it still exists, much of what did 2,000 years ago. So it was amazing. I mean, there are two options of possible tombs that are close and nearby. So we went and saw both of them and went in both of them. It was just absolutely amazing. With the huge, massive uh, stones that they put in front of, of those graves. And just to be reminded, wow, thank you, Lord, for preserving throughout history a living testimony to the historicity and the truthfulness of this amazing story, Jesus risen from the dead. So this is uh, the tomb. So he was buried in that tomb by uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and then all of the rest of Friday went by, and then a full day Saturday went by, and now it's the beginning of a new day, the third day, early Sunday morning, when Jesus rose from the dead. And with that, we'll pick up on verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, or late on the Sabbath, but literally after the Sabbath, the Sabbath is Saturday. Now that Saturday was officially over on a Jewish calendar, and now it is Sunday. It is the first day of the week. This is Resurrection Sunday. Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Ever since this day, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have primarily celebrated corporately Sunday is the Lord's Day. That's why do Christians go to church on Sunday and not Saturday or another day? Because Jesus rose on Sunday. It's right here in the Gospels. And that's the testimony of the saints in the book of Acts and even in the book of Revelation, that the church immediately began to celebrate Christ's resurrection every Sunday. And that's why we are here today. Did you know? So guess what? Next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Isn't that exciting? Yippee! So after the Sabbath, after Saturday, that was an important detail because Jesus said he would spend at least three days in the grave. Part of Friday one, all day Saturday two, part of Sunday three, fulfilling his prophecies that he just said at the Last Supper to his disciples. And also that had been predicted in the Old Testament a thousand years before. That he would rise again. The third day fulfilling scripture. And so it is early Sunday morning as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week or very early in the morning while it was still dark, says Mark and the other gospels. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Note back in verse 61 of chapter 27, there's Mary Magdalene. What was Mary Magdalene doing? Well, Mary Magdalene, according to Luke 8, she was not a believer when she met Jesus. We don't know the nature of her life, but we do know in Luke chapter 8, she had seven demons living inside of her. And the Lord Jesus, in his grace, set her free. And he cast out at least seven demons from Mary. And immediately she came to believe and adore and have great affection for Jesus Christ as her personal Savior and Lord. And from all we can tell for the rest of the gospel, there's Mary Magdalene along with other faithful, godly women following Jesus over the course of his ministry everywhere he went, meeting his practical needs. Whether it was food or friendship, Mary was in the very center of this group of women who ministered to Jesus the entire time all the way down and so Mary Magdalene ends up being at the foot of the cross when most of his apostles had abandoned him there's Mary Magdalene with some of her friends at the foot of the cross watching Jesus be crucified for six hours she stayed there and then she saw Nicodemus and Joseph take Jesus's body and she follows along seeing where they're going to the garden tomb and Mary and her friends we know from the gospel there are at least four women two Mary probably three Marys and another these ladies and Mary is leading the pack and while Joseph is burying Jesus's body it says Mary and her friends are watching close to the grave to see exactly where he was buried. And so on Easter Sunday morning, before anybody else, Mary Magdalene 
has such affection and love for her Lord. She wants to go see the grave. She wants to go, if possible, maybe anoint his body if she had access to his body. And that's what she's doing here. By the way, Mary Magdalene didn't have any kind of a illegitimate relationship with Jesus as the world tries to tell us. She was not uh, the adulterous woman described in Luke 7. They have misidentified her character. Godly woman. Disciple of Christ. Great courage. So Mary Magdalene, who was from Galilee, by the way, and the other Mary, came to look at the grave early morning. And then look at verse 2. All of a sudden, uh, something happens. And behold, get this, a severe earthquake, a severe earthquake. If you remember, we talked about on Friday when Jesus got crucified. After being on the cross for six hours, there was a severe earthquake that took place just as Jesus died. And it says that the rocks split open and people were raised from the dead and went all throughout Jerusalem. God caused that earthquake. God causes this earthquake as well. It's a supernatural sign that something great has happened, that God is on the move. And behold, a a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. So at the time of the resurrection, an earthquake happens from God Almighty in heaven. Jesus rises again from the dead and poof, he's gone out of the tomb. We don't know where he is at this point. An angel of God comes down from heaven and removes that heavy stone from in front of the tomb. And then the angel sits on top of that stone. And we saw several of those gravestones when we were in Israel. And they could be anywhere from this high to even higher. They are massive and they weigh, weigh thousands of pounds. And here's this angel just sitting up there, as happy as can be, just waiting for these ladies and the disciples to come because he's got good news. And so he's sitting up on top of it, and God used him to remove the stone. He rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And verse 3 says, and the angel's appearance was like lightning. In other words, he was as bright as the sun. Why? Because he came from heaven. Blinding, and his garment white as snow. That just speaks, and it probably, his garments were literally white, but that also speaks of his sinlessness as a holy angel, as all the angels in heaven are sinless and dressed in white. This is an amazing sight. Throughout the Bible, consistently, when a human being sees an angel from heaven, they get scared. They collapse and fall in fear, typically, because of their sinfulness in the presence of that which is sinlessness. Even though it's not God, but it's a sinless, heavenly, supernatural being. But Mary and the women keep their senses about them, I think, because of the grace of God and by virtue of the fact that they were faithful and believers, not overcome by their sin in the presence of a heavenly being. But there were other people at the tomb. Uh, Verse 4 says there were guards at the tomb. You look a little earlier, or back in Matthew 27, after Jesus' body was buried, it says that uh, the Sadducees, or the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish leadership that had Jesus falsely accused and murdered the, the, the religious leaders, they went to Pilate because they wanted some Roman soldiers so they could put the soldiers around and guard Jesus' tomb. Because the religious leaders said that, well, the disciples might steal Jesus' body because this deceiver, Jesus, said he'd rise from the grave. But we know he's not going to rise from the grave, but his disciples will probably try to get his body and take it out so they can fool the people, so they can get people to think that Jesus did rise again from the dead. And that would be terrible deception. That would be a horrible thing for you, Pilate. Then you'd have a mutiny on your hands. So you better put some soldiers around that tomb to guard it so nobody gets in to steal the body. And so... Pilate acquiesced and allowed the Sadducees to have and borrow some of the Roman soldiers or the Roman guard. That's what that means in verse 4. And it could have, we don't know how the big the dispatch was from 4 to 12 soldiers, people say. It's a lot of soldiers. And they put a seal of some sort on the tomb. So you've got these Roman soldiers guarding the tomb Friday, Saturday, early Sunday morning. And these Roman soldiers, they were pagan. They were unbelievers. They didn't know scripture. They probably didn't even know who Jesus was. Unless, of course, they were there at the crucifixion. They were false worshipers. They were idolaters. And these guys turn out to be a bunch of bums, actually. We're going to see that from the text. I'll tell you who one of the Roman guards wasn't that was there was probably look at Gen- uh, Matthew 27, verse 54. At the time of the crucifixion, there was a Roman soldier. He was actually called a centurion. He was like a captain. He was a high official in the Roman army he was in charge of a hundred soldiers a centurion means a hundred this centurion worked for Pilate. the gospels tell us that this centurion who was a pagan 
Gentile, unbeliever, not a Jew, didn't know Jesus, probably immoral, idol worshiper, mocked and hated Jesus. And we know that that centurion was put in charge by Pilate the moment Pilate had Jesus condemned to death. This centurion took over with all of his posse and other underling Roman soldiers. And the Gospels say they proceeded to just abuse Jesus by stripping him naked, beating him to a pulp, dressing up as a mock king, spitting in his face, pulling out his beard, bashing him upside the head with his fake scepter. Then this centurion led Jesus down the streets of Jerusalem to the place of execution. This centurion was mocking Jesus all the way. This centurion was in charge. This centurion commanded his soldiers to crucify Jesus at the place of execution on Golgotha. This unbelieving centurion oversaw it all and approved all the dirty deeds that his soldiers did as they abused, maligned, and mistreated Jesus. And it says that this centurion there was responsible for stripping Jesus virtually naked at the cross, dividing up his garments, passing them out to his soldiers. And this centurion sat there or stood there for six hours watching Jesus the Savior die on the cross. At the end of six hours, just as Jesus died and gave up his spirit to the Father at three o'clock in the afternoon, all uh, three of the Gospels say this. Look at uh, Matthew 27, verse 54. The centurion's heart was changed. He was convicted of his sin. He just spent probably eight to nine hours with Jesus from the time he went on trial with Pilate to the time he breathed his last. And God was working on his heart with the Spirit of God and the truth of Jesus and the testimony of Jesus Christ, convicting this sinner to the point that look what happened in verse 54. Now the centurion, the main Roman soldier, and those who were with him, his soldiers keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake at the time of his death and the things that were happening throughout that eight-hour period became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. That centurion got saved. Luke 23 says, the centurion said, it says about the centurion, he was praising God. And then he said, truly, this is the Son of God. That pagan centurion got saved at the death of Jesus Christ. So he's probably not one of these guys down here, these Roman guards. But anyway, going back uh, to early Sunday morning, uh, the angel comes, there's an earthquake. And it says the Roman guards who were there, it says the guards shook for fear. By the way, the same word there, Shook for fear is the same word as that earthquake. Man, they shook violently. There was a personal earthquake each of them had in their heart and in their head. Boy, when that happens to people, uh, you fall over as though you are dead, and that's exactly what happened. These Roman, tough, trained, warlike Roman soldiers, when they saw this angel and saw the earthquake, they shook with fear to the point that they fell over and were like dead men. They didn't die, but they probably became unconscious. Can you imagine that? These four little old ladies coming along, and then all of a sudden, all these amazing events, and there's an earthquake, and it shakes the world, at least as far as they know. And there's this angel from heaven who's as bright as the sun, and there's these intimidating five or four to 12 Roman soldiers in full garb, and all of a sudden, they just plop over dead, and there's the lady standing there. And that's why in verse 5, just an amazing scene. It all happens instantaneously. So the angel knows, I need to intervene here before these ladies have a heart attack. So verse 5, the angel answered, or he explained the scene to them. They didn't say anything. They just had utter awe and fear on their face. And the angel knew that. God knew that. The angel ministers to these ladies of faith. And the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid. The angel knew they were afraid. The gospels say they were afraid. They were struck with terror. We would have been as well. The fact that they still have their senses about them, that they're conscious and standing there is, an, is absolutely amazing. These women were courageous. They were fearless. After all, Mary Magdalene, she had to deal with seven demons. Have you ever had to deal with seven demons? Inside you? Well, she did. She feared nothing. She's there in their face. I don't care about these 12 Roman soldiers. I'm going up to that tomb. I don't care about an earthquake. But she did have, she was overcome with fear. Because she was also a human. And the angel ministers sweetly, really, do not be afraid, ladies, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who's been crucified. How in the world did the angel know that? God told them. God let the angels know. God knows everything. He knows what people's needs are on a very personal level, and he does the same thing here to meet, meet their needs. I know what you need. You're looking for Jesus. You're looking for Jesus who is crucified. Be calm. Verse 6, he is not here. He is not here. 
Boy, when they heard that, they probably first got discouraged. They were not thinking he's risen from the dead. They had a little bit of doubt as well, like the apostles. He's not here. And then he says, for he is risen. He's not here, for he is risen. He is alive. Your Savior came back from the grave. What glorious news for them, just as he said. Just as he said. The closer to Jesus' death he got, as he was around his apostles and these ladies, he kept repeating that message. I am going to Jerusalem to die. I am going to Jerusalem to die. That's all they heard. They hated that. But then he said, but I'm also going to rise from the dead. And they weren't listening. They didn't hear that. It wasn't sinking in. But here this angel testifies, he is risen, he is risen, just as he said, come see the place where he is lying. And so he actually invited them into the tomb, and the other Gospels tell us that the ladies went inside the tomb. And when they got in there, they saw, sure enough, it was empty. Jesus' body, clothing, was still laying there, pristine, untouched, untampered with, except for the headcloth sitting next to all of it, neatly folded up, folded up. When they got in there, there was another angel, so there were two angels who looked like men. They were masculine-looking, glorious, bright white human-like figures yet angels from heaven so there's two angels in there giving testimony to the resurrection of christ that was important to a jew because according to the old testament you couldn't establish spiritual truth unless you have the testimony of two or three witnesses god gives two witnesses as angels supernatural witnesses he is risen from the dead he is risen from the dead and i think that's why god sent four women to be a testimony of two to three witnesses when they went and told people because it was just one person in a Jewish mind, that's not sufficient. This is too amazing. This is too unbelievable. This is, I, I can't buy that testimony from one person. We know that's true because Mary Magdalene of the four ladies, she, she was kind of taking the lead. We know this. And she goes in, and before she even got in the tomb, or after she got in the tomb, she just ran, according to the Gospel of John, she ran back prematurely and left these other women at the tomb. And it says, when Mary Magdalene went back to the disciples, and also the other ladies eventually, when they told the apostles, uh, Jesus is risen from the dead, the initial response from the 11 apostles was, uh, I don't believe it. As a matter of fact, in one of the Gospels, it says that Mary and the other ladies, they were speaking nonsense. They are speaking nonsense. So when they heard the testimony from Mary, they didn't believe it initially. So God gives us four women who were eyewitnesses that that tomb was empty. He is risen from the dead. Uh, verse 7, and the angel says, go quickly, go quickly. You've seen with your own eyes. You're now to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And we're going to start with the apostles because that's where it needs to start. But it is interesting that God was gracious to these women by letting them see the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead first, even before his own apostles. As a matter of fact, we, we, we think the first person to see Jesus Christ risen from the dead was Mary Magdalene. How amazing. And throughout the Gospels, God is so gracious in a very special way to, to needy women. So Mary Magdalene had that wonderful privilege. Go quickly and tell his disciples, go tell his apostles that he's risen from the dead and behold, he's going before you into Galilee. Jesus kept saying that to his apostles and the disciples before he died. He said it at the Last Supper. Okay, I'm going to die. I will rise again from the dead. And then I want you guys to meet me for a very special rendezvous in Galilee. Now, his, there, he said this in Jerusalem at the time of the Last Supper. But he kept saying Galilee, Galilee. That was very important. There was a very special meeting Something significant was going to happen after Jesus rose from the dead in Galilee. They didn't know what. The reason that's important is because all of the apostles, except for Judas, the oddball, who was from the Jerusalem area, the other 11 apostles were all from Galilee. That was their hometown. After the Passover, they were going to go back home to Galilee. And so Jesus is telling them, after the resurrection, you need to meet me in Galilee. I'm going to go before you in Galilee when I rise again from the dead. They forgot about that. And so now the angel is telling the ladies, can you remind my apostles, please, to go back to Galilee after the feast and to meet me there and that I will go before them. And we have a very special rendezvous and meeting that everybody needs to be there. Well, what is that special, very important meeting? We're going to see that at the very end of Matthew 28 but this is a very important message and we can't miss it it's a reminder go and tell them i've risen from the that he's risen from the dead that he is alive that he is going to galilee and that you need to be there behold i have told you verse 8 and they departed quickly they obeyed these these ladies they listened to the angels and they were gone they departed quickly from the tomb get this with fear and great joy with awe and with ecstasy with awe and fear overwhelmed by 
uh, the events that were supernatural, overwhelmed also probably by uh, the reality of their maybe their sin. And there, there was some fear, but it was a holy fear. It was a reverent fear that they had. And at the same time, they just got this unspeakable joy. Our Savior Jesus, we get to see him again. He's risen from the dead. These angels just told us. And so they're running quickly back to the apostles with great joy and fear. And they ran to report it to the disciples, and the disciples didn't believe it at first. You know, if you are a Christian, boy, if you're a Christian, hopefully you woke up with great joy today. Regardless of what went on in your life last week, regardless of whatever miserable thing was laying ahead for you this upcoming week, if you are a, a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, you had every right to wake up this morning with great joy, knowing that regardless of what's going on in my life and how horrible other people are and how horrible I am, I know Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead for me. I am forgiven of my sin. I know him personally. He has conquered all. Thank you, Lord Jesus, what a reason to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And that's the truth that these ladies know. And by the way, you don't know this supernatural joy unless you're a Christian. Unbelievers, they don't know true joy. Unbelievers have a pseudo-fake superficial joy. Whether it's fading happiness, it's contingent upon circumstances, so it's come and go. It doesn't last. And the world typically tries to create a false joy with external things. That's not true of the Christian. True joy comes from within side. As a result of salvation, knowing Jesus Christ, and the moment you become a Christian, God puts the Holy Spirit of God inside you as a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you if you're a Christian. And according to Galatians 5, it is the Holy Spirit who produces true, ongoing, supernatural, eternal joy in your heart from knowing Jesus Christ. Personally, that is the only source of true joy. And these ladies were true believers because they had joy. They had joy. And only Christians can know true joy. The world is gr grappling and just trying to find joy and satisfaction, but they never will until they bend the knee to Christ. So they ran to report to the disciples, verse 9, and behold, get this, they're on their way to meet the disciples, and boom, they ran into Jesus. Now, it's very possible they didn't recognize him at first. Maybe they thought he was a stranger, a gardener, or whatever. Because that's what happened to Mary. Thought he was the gardener. And it's, so they run into Jesus and it says he greeted them. Or he simply said, hello. It's not with the voice of God that shook the world. Hark! Didn't do that. It was just this simple, hello. And it just immediately put them at ease. And they knew, oh, this is Je that's Jesus' voice. And so, ching, the light went on. And they knew, he is risen from the dead. He's in our very presence. And so their joy was escalated all the more. As they get to see Jesus personally he said hello and they came up so appropriate they came up took hold of his feet in other words got down on their face grabbed his feet and worshiped him the word for worship there is to get down on your face and that's what true believers do if you're a true christian if you're a believer when you go to heaven you're going to have that privilege to get down on, literally on your face and your feet before your Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why we worship today as Christians. We worship the Lord Jesus, even though he is in heaven. We still do this with great joy in our hearts. And hopefully that's why you came to church today. You were motivated by true joy of knowing him, knowing that you had the privilege to worship the living Lord today. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's interesting and it's appropriate that Matthew ends his gospel with saints worshiping Jesus, not saints worshiping the Father, that's appropriate, not saints worshiping the Spirit, but saints worshiping Jesus. He was a man, he's the God-man. It is only legitimate to worship God. Jesus is the God-man. He deserves worship. He is worthy of worship. We as believers, we worship Jesus Christ. And Matthew opens his gospel with believers worshiping Jesus as a baby in Matthew 2.11. And now Matthew closes his gospel with these women worshiping Jesus at his resurrection and later his apostles worshiping at the time of his ascension. And that's what we need to be doing. If you're a Christian, you need to be worshiping Jesus on a regular basis and experiencing the joy of God through his resurrection and forgiveness of sin and knowing him. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren, the apostles and the disciples and leave for Galilee that they shall see me. We have got to meet in Galilee. Now, Jesus was going to meet with his apostles several times in Jerusalem that day, eight days later at another time, but three weeks plus later, he's going to meet them in Galilee again. And that's what he's talking about. 
this very special meeting in Galilee. So that is rejoicing about the resurrection, verses 1 through 10. Now, the good news is interrupted with some realistic and bad, sad news. We need to hear this because, you know, uh, this is a fallen, cursed world. And there's bad news out there. And there are people who are bringing bad news to Christians. And here's a real-life historical account. Matthew is unique in recording this. So we've got all this cause for rejoicing and praise and worship and then it's interrupted with this sad scenario verses 11 through 15 look at uh, this is rejecting the resurrection you've got those believers who are rejoicing about the resurrection and you do as a fact you have people who reject the resurrection you have unbelievers who reject the resurrection either purposefully and with malicious intent or superficial false believers who don't even know they're lost but they don't know christ or a lot of people, the most common way to reject the truth of the resurrection is to ignore it, to dismiss it. To, I don't want to talk about that. That's how believers reject the resurrection. Unbelievers, unbelievers cannot understand our joy over the resurrection. Even as I was driving to church today, and I'm just looking at people on the street, a uh, person over here mowing their lawn, their hair's all messed up. I don't know if he's a believer or not. I, boy, I wish he could come to church with me today. Maybe he went to the early, early services at his church. That'd be cool. But I, I don't think so. His hair was messed up. Um, or maybe he went to the Saturday night service. But that's not Resurrection Sunday. Jesus was still in the grave. And then another lady jogging down the street, getting in shape. Yeah, she was fit, physically fit. Ain't going to last. 50 years from now, she's not going to look like that. Something more important that she needs in her life. And I wish I could bring her to church with me. But anyway, that's just kind of how my mind, and I'm just thinking of all these people and really the majority of the world. They can't understand the joy we have over the reality of the greatest event in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They reject it. And here it is. Why do people reject the resurrection? Well, from disbelief, love of sin, and sheer hatred. Really. Strong word. Talk to anybody. Talk to someone who has heard the gospel story. Talk to somebody who has heard about Jesus. Talk to an unbeliever who understands Jesus existed, that maybe he even died on the cross, but they reject the, the resurrection. Then you are dealing with somebody who is filled with disbelief, a love for their own sin that is blinding them from the truth, and they have utter sheer hatred in their soul for Jesus and for God. Strong statements, but every one of those truths come from Jesus' mouth himself, especially in the Gospel of John. It, it's not sheer ignorance. It's not just a lack of information. Sometimes it is for people, and that's why we need to give them the gospel. I'm talking about people who are fully informed and have heard the story. And the epitome of this were the, the Jewish leaders who have been dealing with Jesus for three years trying to kill him, trying to shut him up. Verse 11, let's look at it, the rejection. Now, while they were on their way, while these were ladies running back to the disciples and ran into Jesus, the simultaneous, great exciting news, bad news, behold. Some of the guard, some of the Roman soldiers. Okay, so maybe you had 12 Roman soldiers fall over dead. Well, they finally come to their senses and wake up. Probably after the ladies are gone. And so they send a delegation. Wow. And so these Roman soldiers are sitting around thinking, okay, we had one responsibility. It was guard the dead body. And we know Roman rule. If you're on guard and your prisoner gets away, or you're on guard and the body's taken away, then you have to pay for it with your life. Pilate? And Caesar is going to have us executed because we let the body get away. These Roman soldiers are in fear of their life. They are panicked, so they come up with a plan. And they send a delegation from their Roman soldiers. Oh, man, we better send a couple of you guys better go back, and you better talk to the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas and whoever it is, and you better make a deal with them. Verse 11, they're not interested in the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. They're not like that centurion who got saved. They are hardened to the core, and they are money-hungry. And they're fearing for their life. They are consumed with self. Verse 11, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported the chief priest, that's the Sanhedrin, these people who hated Jesus and had him executed, all that happened. This is amazing. This is God's uh, wisdom. Not only is God testifying to the reality of the resurrection with an, op uh, an empty tomb by virtue of two angels from heaven, and also from four believing ladies who knew Jesus personally. God is even going to use unbelievers to testify to the reality of the empty 
tomb. And he uses these pagan Roman soldiers to do it. These Roman soldiers were eyewitnesses of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. At least the empty tomb that happened right in front of their eyes. And that's why at the end of verse 7 it says they go to the Sanhedrin and it says they told the chief priests all that happened. What is that? Well, we were there and we were stationed and we were awake. We didn't fall asleep. We were on duty. And then all of a sudden there was this huge earthquake and we started getting really scared. And then some light from heaven. We don't know what happened. The stone got rolled away. And then we fell over dead and then we woke up and here we are. That's what it means when it says they reported all that happened. You know what that means? They told the truth. Isn't that amazing? They told the truth. Now, the Sadducees, they're in a panic. Yikes. The body is gone. I, I guarantee that probably some of these Sadducees actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. How do I know that? These Sadducees, some of them, saw Lazarus risen from the dead weeks before. As a matter of fact, these haters of Jesus, these Jewish leaders, they did not accuse Jesus of not doing miracles. They knew Jesus did miracles. They witnessed Jesus do miracles. So they believed Jesus could pull off a miracle of resurrection. But they said he did it by the power of Satan. So it could very well be they believed, wow, he he did rise from the dead, just like he did with Lazarus. Yikes, we are in trouble. Who knows if that's what they're thinking. But one thing they are thinking is we've got to change the story. We have got to lie. We've got to cover our hide. We have got to do the dirty deed. And we've got to convince these Roman soldiers to do it with us. Otherwise, we will be mocked by all of the city of Jerusalem. In light of this great reality of the resurrection of Christ, God forbid that people actually believe that, he's, that he is who he said he was, the Messiah of Israel. That's what they're motivated by. They're motivated by sheer hatred of Jesus, denial of the truth, unbelief, the love of their own sin, being supernaturally blinded by Satan himself and driven by Satan himself as a tool of his undermine the truth of the resurrection and so they go and report this the roman soldiers do to the sanhedrin verse 12 and when they had assembled with the elders that they called a formal hearing man we need to call the sanhedrin together get every, all 70 people together right now i don't care what they're doing all the pharisees all the elders all the sadducees together we need to have counsel right now i would suspect that joseph of arimathea maybe wasn't there or maybe he went and left would have no more to do with it So they assembled the elders and counseled together. It was a formal meeting. And then they uh, made a plan. They were unified. They gave an edict. They had action items. And here were their action items. They decided to give a large sum of money to the Roman soldiers to bribe them to lie that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's what they did. A large, a huge, massive sum of money. They were rich. They had deep pockets. And they knew these Roman soldiers got so-so pay and they'd be motivated through bribery and money and so the roman soldiers agreed verse 13 and they said uh you are you are to say here's your lie and that's what unbelievers do they lie about jesus they lie about the resurrection they lie about the bible they're liars and here was their lie you are to say this his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep now if the roman soldiers were actually asleep when that happened how in the world could they say this Well, while we were sleeping, I saw all of these apostles come and steal Jesus' body. And after they were done, I woke up. No, you didn't see anything. You were asleep. But that's their lie. It's inconsistent. By the way, liars always get in trouble because they can't keep their story straight. It's always inconsistent. There's always a hole in it somewhere. By the way, people are still repeating this lie today in circles, in lay people circles but also in scholarly circles, denying the resurrection, saying that Jesus' body got stolen by his disciples according to the sleeping Roman soldiers. Not very convincing. Jesus is risen from the dead. How do you know? Because he changed my life. He saved my soul. He brought me up out of the gutter and made me a new creature. So I'm a witness too of his resurrection life that has transformed my life. And if you're a Christian, you can say the same thing. In addition, you've got objective testimony from Scripture that he is risen from the dead. Verse 14, and, it, and if this should come to the governor's ears, okay, Pilate, so they were concerned about Pilate. So if, if Pilate finds out about this and hears about Jesus' body getting lost, then we will win Pilate over for you and keep you out of trouble and we won't let him execute you. So maybe they're thinking they're going to schmooze Pilate as well, give him money, probably intimidate Pilate like they did during the... Uh, mock trial of jesus when Pilate kept saying 
Jesus is innocent. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is innocent. And then these same Jewish leaders said, you know what? If you keep saying that, we are going to go to your boss, Caesar in Rome, and say that there's another king that you're allowing to usurp his authority. And then Pilate, oh, you can't do that. Okay, okay, okay. I'll have him executed. So they, they knew how to push Pilate's buttons and undermine his authority with manipulation. That's exactly what they're doing. Plus, money. Well, yeah, don't worry about Pilate, your boss. He, he won't have you executed. He might be a little upset. He might reprimand you, whatever. We'll take care of him. And so he assured the Roman soldiers. And get this. So they agreed to it. Verse 15, and they took the money. They took the bribe and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews even to this day. That's the, the rejection of the resurrection story. Uh, I said in my point there, rejecting the resurrection, people reject Christ because of disbelief. Uh, that's what Jesus said in John 8. Jesus is teaching publicly, and these Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders, Jesus is teaching publicly, and all of a sudden, there are hecklers in the crowd. As a teacher in a public group, there's nothing more embarrassing, intimidating, and awkward than a heckler who starts speaking up in the crowd. And they're coming from all quarters while Jesus is trying to teach. And so he's given the gospel. He said he came from the Father. Uh, he says he came from heaven to give life. And all of a sudden, these hecklers start speaking up in, in John chapter 8. And they said, your testimony is not true. You, you know what they did? You're a liar, Jesus. And it got worse. And then Jesus retorted back, and he keeps telling the truth. And then they ramped it up after just saying, you're a liar or your testimony isn't true. They said, we are not children of fornication. You're a bastard, son. That's literally what they said publicly. And then finally, they just said, you have a demon to him. They said all this publicly. Unbelievable. And Jesus said they were saying that because, quote, they did not believe his word. Disbelief. Why do people have hardened hearts? Disbelief. They don't believe the word of God. They don't believe scripture. They don't believe Matthew 28. They don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. So unbelief. And coupled with that, Jesus said, remember that wonderful verse, John 3, 16? God so loved the world. God so loved sinners that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, see the key word, whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, trusts in the Bible and in the gospel and believes it as true and believes that Jesus is the Savior, that he did die on the cross for sin, that he was buried, that he rose again from the dead, that he is the only way to heaven. That's what that means. God so loved sinners who needed forgiveness, that God gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. So if you are sitting here today and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, and you came in here doubting the literal resurrection, my prayer for you is that you just hang on to John 3.16. If you, if you don't believe you're struggling with belief, pray to God, I, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I doubt, help me overcome my doubt. God will answer that prayer, he will. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in that moment of time, God will answer your prayer. He will save you from your sin. He will adopt you into a spiritual family. He will put his Holy Spirit in you to live with you forever. And you'll be welcomed into the family of God. And you will go home celebrating Resurrection Sunday like you never have in the history of your life. Blessed truth. That's John 3.16. Three verses later, John 3.19. It reminds us there's a reality. Some will believe. Some will believe, but not all will believe. Some will believe, most will reject. Well, why will they reject? Why will they not believe? According to John 3, 18 and 19, it says that some will not believe because, get this, they love the darkness. The darkness refers to sin. They love their sin. Why do people reject Jesus Christ deliberately, knowingly, willfully? Because they love their sin more than they love God. That is frightening. And that's why I put that there. The rejection is driven by disbelief. It is love for sin. And then finally, just utter hatred. Jesus said in John 7, verse 7, they, they hate me. The world hates me. And then later on, he told the disciples, you know what? They're going to hate you too. And if you're a Christian, the world hates you. Satan hates you. Unbelievers deep down hate you for what you stand for as a Christian. They hate your truth. It is narrow. It is judgmental. When actually, it's good news. It's the thing and the only thing that could save their soul. 
This is sad. And the last thing that is so debilitating is that Second Corinthians says unbelievers don't believe is because the God of this world, Satan, is literally blinding their eyes and keeping them from understanding the gospel. Satanic blindness. It is supernatural. They don't even know it. That's why when Jesus said in John 8 that to the unbelievers, you're of, the fa- you're of your father, the devil. Satan is your father. And they said, no, he's not. We love God. We love Yahweh. But Jesus knew the truth. That's why you can have people who say, no, I know God. I love God. When really... They are children blinded by Satan himself. Sad reality. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can set those people free and open their eyes, along with the work of the Holy Spirit, supernatural prayer. So let's go on to the next point. After rejoicing about the resurrection, if you're a believer, keep in mind those rejecting the resurrection because of unbelief. And then finally, for those of us who are believers, how do we respond pos- uh, properly to the resurrection? Responding to the resurrection, if you're a believer. It's all about witnessing to the world. 16 through 20, witnessing to the world. It would be interesting if I had a little survey and had you write down on a white card, and I asked you this question. What is the mission of the church? You can't write more than a sentence. You can only write one thing, and it has to be a very short short phrase or bullet point, and preferably maybe just one or two words. What is the mission of the church? of the church, and then I collected all those and read those. I guarantee we'd get different answers. Some would say, well, the mission of the church is worshiping God. Others would say, well, the mission of the church is equipping the saints or believers or praising God or singing to God. Or maybe the mission of the church is to learn more and more about God once you're a believer. And then, based on this passage, Matthew 28, Jesus tells us what the mission of the church is while we are here on earth, and it's none of those. Now, those are priorities for the church. Worshiping God is our greatest priority, but it's not the mission of the church of why we're here on earth. God saved us, left us here for a specific mission, and here it is. It's a mission that we can only do here that we can't do when we get to heaven. We can worship here, we can worship in heaven. We can praise here, we can uh, praise in heaven. We can learn here, we will keep learning to some degree in heaven. But the one thing we can do now as believers is witness to the world. We can't do that when we're in heaven. So that's what I mean by witnessing to the world as how we should respond to the resurrection. Let's go ahead and look at it. Verse 16. But going back to the good news and believers. So the ladies made it to the apostles. They heard a couple of times. Some of them went and saw themselves. And then finally they believed. They all got on the same page. And that first day and then eight days later, Jesus made special appearances to the 11 apostles. And they all believed. And then now several weeks have gone by. And it's almost 40 days to the point of the ascension have gone by. And Jesus has spent, he made several appearances in Jerusalem to his apostles. Now they've gone back to Galilee just like he told them to do. They're back home with their families and in their routine and with their jobs. So it could be up to 30 days after the resurrection where 16 through 20 takes place. And here's that gathering that Jesus was talking about. According to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, it talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when he rose from the dead, he began visiting certain people. And he visited the apostles. And then it says that he visited over 500 at one time, 500 men in one group. That's what church history believes this is talking about. In Galilee, just before the ascension, Jesus calls that and convenes that rendezvous, very important meeting of all those Galileans or believers together. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, there's probably over 500 or 500 men here at this meeting. The apostles definitely are there. They're probably on the inner circle, and Jesus meets them there. Huge crowd. And the apostles are front and center, verse 16, but the 11 uh, disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. We don't know what mountain it was, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. So apparently they had this gathering, and then they see Jesus approaching. And they did the appropriate thing. They worshipped him. Again, they're bawling down on their face, worshipping Jesus as the God-man, as their blessed Savior. What a glorious sight, this group of 500 people having a worship service with Jesus not in heaven, but right there in their presence. And then at the end of verse 17, look at that interesting phrase. All these disciples were worshiping Jesus and excited, but then it says, but some were doubtful. Some still had doubts, this overhanging, haranguing doubt in their mind. We don't know what they were doubting. It could be that this group of 500 and maybe some are on the outskirts and some figures talking to everybody else on the, and they're 
is that really Jesus? I'm not quite sure. I can't see him from here. But we know that the disciples were just plagued with doubts, as were the women all throughout, because human beings are feeble. They are weak. They are finite. We struggle with doubt as believers all the time, don't we? We have degrees of doubt. God, help me with my doubt. And so they're true, legitimate believers, yet they struggled with doubt just for a moment because that doubt is relieved, I think, in verse 18, and Jesus came up. Jesus came up and relieved all doubt. Indeed, it was him. It was the risen Lord. I mean, Thomas doubted when he heard the testimony, but in, I, I want to see Jesus and touch him myself, doubting Thomas. So it's only natural that they would be doubting to a degree. Verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus was given all authority over heaven and earth by God the Father by virtue of his obedience of his perfect life, his willful death, his powerful resurrection, and he's about to have his ascension on high, and God the Father endows him with all authority as the Savior. And not just over believers, over all of earth, over believers and unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever today and you don't know Christ, Jesus has authority over you. And someday... Uh, and this is true of all unbelievers. Unbelievers, when they die, it says they will bow the knee to Jesus and have to give account to him before they are consigned to eternal hell forever. That's what Scripture says. That's what Jesus said. Jesus has all authority over every soul. Every soul exists, is his. He has authority over everyone, heaven and earth. Verse 19, and so now he's talking to his believers. And this is the great commission. And this is what he was waiting for. Here's what the church is supposed to do. Here's what you're supposed to preoccupy yourself with as a church and as believers. This is your priority. Go, 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 go infiltrate the world. Go talk to unbelievers. Get to know them. Befriend them. Infiltrate their world. That's evangelism. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And it's ongoing. It is continual. It's supposed to be a regular routine part of every Christian's life. And so I, I was convicted of reading about it this week. When was the last time I talked to an unbeliever about the gospel? And as a Christian, if it's been a really, really long time, then we need to ask God to help us renew that passion. Go, go, go. And you know, the easiest place to start, probably the best place to start, is start with any family members you have that you're close to that don't know Christ. And make sure they hear the gospel fully and completely, at least one time in their life. That's all. And then just pray for them and be a godly witness. You don't have to keep haranguing them and hammering them over the head. Okay, for the 75th time, here's the gospel. Happy Easter. Put your beer can away. No, that, no. That's not good news. That's annoying news, actually. Start with your family. Make sure they hear the gospel at least one time it's on, in entirety. Keep praying, and then maybe uh, associates and friends and people you know at work. Begin there. And ask God to help you and empower you for even other and greater opportunities. Go. Go, therefore, make disciples. That's the main verb, make disciples. And you do it by going, evangelizing, sharing the gospel. Do it of all nations. Don't be partial or biased towards anybody. Everybody needs, if they're a sinner, that's, their, that's our demographic we're trying to reach. They need Jesus. They need forgiveness. If they need eternal life, they are lost. They're a candidate. And then if they believe in the gospel, we baptize them. We dunk them after they get saved. We don't dunk them to get saved. We don't dunk them to get sins forgiven. We don't baptize people so that God will like them more. They get saved first, forgiven by God and the work of Jesus Christ, and they're identified in the church formally through baptism, that they are a part of our family. An external work representing the inner work that had already transpired. And we do this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, in the name of, the name is singular. God has one name, and his name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's his one name. One God, three persons. One name. The triune God of the universe. And that's who Jesus represented. And then when do, people do hear the gospel, and when they do believe, and after we do baptize them and we do bring them into the church, we spend the rest of our life and their life teaching them, teaching them, teaching them. This is discipleship. And if you're a Christian, we are all always learning. It's a lifelong process, and that's what we're supposed to do so that they, we can all grow together in the knowledge of the word as we seek to please God in all that we do. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, Jesus promised you can do all this. You are empowered because I, the Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, reigning from on high in your very presence, having given the spirit to live in you. I am with you always. That's why Jesus could literally say he was with us wherever we go, because he put his spirit, the spirit of Christ in me. If you're a Christian, you take Jesus with you wherever you go. That's how we respond properly to the resurrection. In closing, go to Philippians chapter three. And I just want to read this as we close, as we think about 
the practical application of knowing about this doctrine of resurrection. Jesus said in John 14, because I live, you also will live. Because I will rise from the dead, you also will get to be resurrected someday as well. And here's Paul's commentary on a practical application for us about how exciting the prospect of experience a physical, literal, bodily, eternal resurrection someday after the pattern of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, In the meantime, while Jesus is in heaven, we are waiting for Jesus to return from heaven. He is on his way. But our heart is filled with anticipation. Verse 20 of Philippians 3, For our citizenship as Christians is in heaven. That's really our home. That's where we long for. That's where we're going. For which, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. And when he does, verse 21, When Jesus comes and returns to be with his people, he will transform the body of our humble or lowly state. These falling apart, decaying, finite bodies. Can I get an amen? humble state into conformity he will transform metamorphosize our lowly bodies into conformity with the body of his glory it is a perfect body it is a supernatural eternal resurrection body like no other with no faults absolutely amazing and that's the kind of body you're going to have and i'm going to have as a believer in jesus christ someday that is the glory of the resurrection how's he going to do this by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. He's going to be able to pull it off because he is almighty, all-powerful, supernatural God. And he does amazing miracles. With that, let's go to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, thanking them for this glorious Resurrection Sunday. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the wonderful good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. And Father, I thank you that so many here have experienced personally the truth of salvation and resurrection. And God, just fill our hearts up with great joy and awe of you this day. Go before us as well, Lord, and we might walk in obedience to you. Provide opportunities for us to share this good news with those that don't know you. And God, if there is anybody here today that doesn't know you, Personally, I pray that you'd keep ministering to them with the Holy Spirit so that they might understand, they might see the need, that you might open their eyes and that they might come to embrace you as the blessed Savior, that you might adopt them into your family. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.